Greetings, everyone, and welcome to Top 10 with Kyle and Mike. I am your host, Kyle. Up opposite me is our host, Mike. This week, as we do every week, one of us will be putting together a Top 10 list based on the topic of their choosing. This week, Mike has his list. Once he's done relaying it, we will vigorously debate the order of that list and its contents until we have determined a definitive Top 10. With that out of the way, let's get started. What are we doing this week, Mike? All right, K-Dog. This week, we're talking about goosebumps moments oh so well you go ahead yeah so i'm gonna define this one alternately i suppose could be called chills moments it depends i'm gonna define this fairly narrowly uh as always to sort of bend it to my will of course yeah so basically what we're talking about is a moment when you're reading a book watching a movie watching a tv show you get that sensation you feel that tingle on the back of your neck you get goosebumps And I think as I've thought about this list a lot, uh, which I did more than I usually do, because I really didn't want to shortchange this one, I think the root of this feeling is a sense of wonder. It's it's you're watching something, you're reading something, and you just, you get this feeling of, wow, these are the possibilities. So I'm, I'm specifically not talking about fear. It's not it's not when you're watching a movie and somebody jumps out from around a corner. It's not like for it's, example <clears throat> the emotion you might feel while reading a goosebumps novel. It is not that goosebumps. <laughs> okay. Uh, it is not that. Although who knows at times maybe RL Stein took us to a really sublime place and we did feel this. I don't I don't know. I, I well, you should read The Babysitter by RL Stein. It is not part of his Goosebump series and it's not the wonder feeling that you're talking about, but it is terrifying. It's something a little bit different. <laughs> um so I'm talking about this. It doesn't necessarily need to be happiness. It doesn't necessarily need to be sadness. It, it's often sort of this mixed emotion where you just feel a sense of wonder. I will say I think that there are some natural things, uh, natural areas that this leads us to. And in putting this list together, I tried to steer clear of overemphasizing certain categories. So this really lends itself to war movies. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of war movies where somebody gives a really great rousing speech. There's a lot of that. Um, and, and I will give that a little bit of weight, but I don't want to overemphasize that. Same with sports movies. There's a lot of sports movies where there's somebody giving a speech. So putting this together, I tried to get a mix of different uh, pieces. A couple other things I noticed, and then we can get get going on the list, is I think this also lends itself to a series. Because I think in order to get this feeling fully, and I'm not talking about cheaply, because there are some movies, some books that, that get this feeling a little bit cheaply. But to really earn this feeling, we tend to have to know the characters involved for a long time and really care about them. Uh, this also tends to lead us to film because I love to read and I've, I've read a lot of books that in some cases even correspond to movies that would appear on this list. But I think this tends to be the moment itself less of a slow burn. So when you're reading, I think it's a little bit harder to get this feeling because it needs to just hit you. There needs to, something needs to happen that you just, whoa, wow. So there's going to be a lot of films on here. And I do think in some cases there's going to be a waiting towards slightly older, cheesier stuff. Well, I so can't... That, those are all of my observations out of the way. Okay. Yeah, that's good. Um, 
I'm glad we're not limiting ourselves to movies, but I agree that I think probably a lot of the ones I can think of are from, if not a movie, like a some kind of film-based art form. Absolutely. Because, yeah, with with a movie you get the advantage of having a score and like all these different things. Yep, score is huge. That's a great observation. That's really big. Yeah, for sure. Well, I'm keen to, I'm keen to hear yours. This will be fun. All right, so uh, I'm just going to jump right into it. We'll do some honorable mentions at the end, yep. but let's let's just jump right into it. So number 10, this is a tough one because this series has a lot of moments that are great, but I had to pick really just one. This is near the end of the Deathly Hallows when Professor McGonagall exits Hogwarts, has a conversation with Seamus Finnegan as well as Neville Longbottom, Tells them of her plans to blow up the bridge leading from the castle. And then calls down the knights, the suits of armor um, from the roof of Hogwarts. So we don't have legal counsel on the show. I think we're not allowed to actually play clips. So I'm just going to describe it. (laughs) I'm going to give you the quote. So she walks out. She's just spoken to Neville, spoken to Seamus, told them, Boom. You want she wants them to blow it up. She says, you know, you have a certain proclivity for pyrotechnics. But then she says to uh these suits of armor, Hogwarts is threatened, man the boundaries, protect us, do your duty to our school. And then she turns to Professor Flitwick and says, I've always wanted to use that spell. <laughs> and there's so much that's so perfect about this scene. There's just that natural, chill inducing visual of seeing the suits of armor jump down from the roof and go to protect the the uh, school i think it's really symbolic because so much of this series is about that protection that harry potter gets from going to hogwarts and to see the building itself defend him and defend his friends and the whole school is something but then i think there's that last piece that really gets at what elevates harry potter which is having dame maggie smith this incredible actress have this goofy little moment amidst all this where she says i've always wanted to do that spell it's the combination of that seriousness and that lightness that makes that series so great and i erupted with chills when i saw this Uh, i definitely did too i think i think you're you're spot on with everything you just said i think for me what's really cool about that particular scene is that hogwarts is literally a castle Mm -hmm. and like it functions just as a school now but it like it has a not a moat or does it have it don't i don't think it has a moat but like it's got the lake it's got the lake and it's just it like it has the sense obviously with all the history and everything of being around for eons and it's kind of cool it's really cool Mm -hmm. to see it like actually being used as a fortress like what a castle is intended to be used for and it Mm -hmm. kind of harkens back to like a more medieval time of magic when i don't know i I think there's like a cool uh cool callback to kind of the source of a lot of the the wonder that we get from magic and like the time that it's supposed to have originated and like it, it kind of coming full circle and you know and in, in defending the school against a like a more modern attack but using these old fashioned kind of knights to do it that in conjunction with what you just said um there are you're right there are a lot of moments like this in Harry Potter but i think probably a goosebumps moment has to come from the deathly hallows because it's 
so perfect. Like, you know, it's wrapping everything up, and um, this is, like, a really good crossroads for basically all of the characters in the <laughs> at this point. Uh, yeah. I can't believe this is number 10. Like, and this is our only Harry Potter one, so that's cool. Yeah, there, there's a couple honorable mentions, and there's probably some arguments to be had, but there are, there are a lot more. Um, number nine is the only boxing movie I'm going to include in this. Uh, so there's probably, we could probably argue about which boxing movie belongs on here. Cause there's a lot of good ones, but number nine, I'm going to include one of my favorites. It's Cinderella man. So this is the Russell Crowe film where he plays James J. Braddock. Um, and he is a depression era boxer who it's it's a really incredible story he starts the movie on a bread line and it's a true story and he ends up by becoming the world champ by fighting this boxer max bear who had actually killed a man in the ring shortly before that yeah it's it's a really incredible story and it's something i've always connected with he talks about uh somebody asks him you know how do you know you're going to win? And he says, well, I know what I'm fighting for. And he says, I'm fighting for milk. And it's really, really powerful because you see the sacrifices he makes for his family. He's a boxer in training. He's at his home and the food gets passed around and he tells his kids he's full and he is not full. And he's made all these sacrifices and as the movie, as the fight climaxes, you see Paul Giamatti's eyes, Paul Giamatti playing his trainer, uh, his promoter, and his eyes start getting really big as he starts to realize that James might actually win. And the flash bulbs are going off. And then at the end, you hear, uh, it's actually Ron Howard's dad. Um, it plays the, uh, the ring announcer. And you hear him shout, new world champion. It's one of the most unbelievably shot boxing scenes of all time. Um, it, it does a really cool job of showing him as he's as he's kind of starting to gray out because he's getting he's just taking so many punches, and you see the flash bulbs going off, and it's so set in an era. It is so depression era. It feels so New York, um, and, and it's just it's incredible. So a lot of great boxing scenes. This one it happens to be my favorite because it it's such an iconic journey and and it's pretty cool that it's a true story well it sounds amazing i've not seen cinderella man uh yeah a pretty embarrassing gap in my movie collection is like any good boxing movie Mm -hmm. i've not actually seen any of the rocky films i didn't see creed was that last year yeah Um, a couple years ago i haven't seen any like of the famous boxing movies so like i can't rank this one even amongst not amongst boxing movies or movies in general. Um, I'll take your word for it. It sounds, it sounds more powerful than, and at least for me, like when I think of Rocky, obviously they're, they're good underdog stories, but he's mm-hmm. like the worst case scenario for him. doesn't seem as dire as the worst case scenario for this guy. Yeah, it's, it's definitely interesting. I think the first Rocky movie was much closer to this uh, than the subsequent ones would seem um, because he's not doing so hot. He's kind of a low-level mob enforcer. Uh, he's breaking people's fingers, you know, because they're not paying off their loans. But this one, it really sets the stakes very clearly. This is a guy whose family is not eating, 
And this is a guy who is giving hope to an entire community. The way they show the match at the end, um, his wife is at home and she doesn't want the kids to watch the match because she's scared that he's fighting this guy who's killed somebody in the ring. And they're secretly listening to the radio in the basement. And you see a huge community full of people watching in a church or listening, excuse me, over the radio in a church. And you see the priest and he's sort of shadow boxing as the, as the fight is going on. And you see people at a bar listening to it. And it's all these people. He's from, I think he's from Hoboken. And it's all these people or Bergen. I think he's the, he's the bulldog of Bergen County or something. And it's all these people from around the community who, you know, just need this. And they're all listening to it. And so the stakes the stakes are very clear. Sounds great. Yeah. So that's that's my boxing entry. Uh, one of my favorites. So moving on to number eight. This one, I'm going to go with the, uh, the literary version, though it has appeared in film a few times. Uh, so this is coming from Sherlock Holmes. This is a scene from, I believe, his final appearance, uh, his last bow. And it's uh, it's a quote from Sherlock to Watson talking about the new world order. And he says, there's an east wind coming all the same. Such a wind as never blew on England yet. It will be cold and bitter, Watson, and a good many of us may wither before its blast. But it's God's own wind nonetheless, and a cleaner, better, stronger land will lie in the sunshine when the storm has cleared. Now, a lot of people, I did some research on this, a lot of people uh, consider this Absolute garbage propaganda for the British war effort in World War One. I. I don't care <laughs> because it is also a really startling and interesting reminder of uh, Sherlock Holmes's place in the world. That when Sherlock Holmes was first written, this was a time of kind of the end of colonial warfare. Uh, it was famously Watson joined Sherlock after coming back from the Anglo-Afghan War. It's a different world. Uh, around the time this was published in the late 19-teens and Britain had, uh, I, I believe this was written after the war and this was kind of a, a bit of a retrospective, but um, looking back on World War One, that changed everything for the Brits. And I think it was really self-aware and neat and different of an actual character in an ongoing literary work to acknowledge that he no longer fit in the world. And I think this was a recognition by Arthur Conan Doyle that the clean, simple answers of a Sherlock um, that were so important during the age of progress of the late 1800s didn't really have a place anymore. I just love this. Um, This gives me chills every time. It was done in the BBC series uh, recently, and it worked. It absolutely worked for me. So that wasn't Sherlock, though, right? Or it was Sherlock? That is Sherlock. So I, I believe, I believe in the show they may have had uh, Mycroft do that, right? Oh, I, I think you're right. Yeah, but in the in the actual uh, story, this is this is Sherlock saying this. Okay. Well, even if it is propaganda, I mean, doesn't that? I mean, that's I don't know. I think that lends. I think that lends a little bit to its case, almost. Um, yeah. But I, I've I've not read, not read it. You know, like I actually read very little Sherlock Holmes, mm-hmm. but I remember really maybe not getting like serious goosebumps when it happened in the show. But like 
it's approached with some serious gravitas. Like it, you know, it's something special when he says it. Yeah, it's it's a fascinating recognition uh, of sort of the seriousness and place of a character um, who exists in a in a world that's not that serious. For the most part, the the problems that Sherlock Holmes is dealing with are, are pretty trifling, even when they do entail murder and such. Um, they're usually dealt with kind of with a lot of jokes and some winks. Um, it's one of the more self-aware series of, of the late 20th and or late 19th and early 20th century but this was a really serious moment and i think really cool um and for me as a reader as as a kid growing up this was a character that meant a lot to me and i think um the recognition that that there might be some problems that even sherlock holmes can't solve was was pretty pretty moving for me I can see it in your eyes, Mike. You're getting moved even right now. Yeah, absolutely. I, I love it. <sighs> yeah, I obviously can't uh, relate quite on the same level as you. For the, I mean, it's I think it's obvious based on listening to this podcast, but Mike is a, a big, 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 big Sherlock fan. Easily the best I, one that I know. So this has a very special place in your heart, I know. <laughs> I do love Sherlock Holmes. Um, so this, this, is a, this is a perfect cap on that series. So that gets us to eight. Um, well, that, do we have any games to play here? Or do we want to? That was uh, eight, right? That was eight. Yes. Let's do seven, and then we can try to do our new segment, our not top three. I'm not sure exactly how we're going to do it here. Maybe. All right. Yeah. Go ahead with seven. All right. So number seven. Uh, this is one of my favorite movies the last couple of years. The King's Speech. Um, the speech at the <sighs> end of the King's speech, this just, oh, that was man. the first time uh, that you said something that actually gave me goosebumps. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <sighs> no, I have a feeling that will continue. Well, um, it, I, I think there's some, um, some debate here about which scene in this movie is the goosebumpiest, but you go ahead. Oh, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Uh, so I'm going with the ending scene or, you know, late in the film scene when, uh, birdie the king actually gives the speech um it's really cool this the way it's shot and and scored is really cool it's him silently walking into this this room where he's gonna be broadcast and you can just see it he's he is terrified this is like his nightmare of his entire life but he walks in with his friend and therapist lionel logue and you see the light flash that he's about to go on air and There's a huge, pregnant, brutal pause before he starts speaking. And I'm just going to give you the first first line or two, uh, because it's a long speech. But he says, In this grave hour, perhaps the most fateful in our history, I send to every household of my peoples, both at home and overseas, this message. And And it keeps going. For me, I can't even read that line without hearing him say, Of my, a peoples. Because... It's one of the hardest transitions for him uh, with the the speech impediment that he has is to transition to the P and he's stumbling and you can see he's about to start choking on his words and you see Lionel, his dear friend, help him and he says, my uh, peoples. And there's this beautiful classical music playing in the background and it starts to swell and it starts to pick up and... It's this incredible moment. It's it's this guy who has so been humanized to us on the screen, delivering the most important message of his entire life. And 
the most important message of the lives of most of the people listening. He's sending them to war. And he does it with such grace. It's unbelievable. I felt such emotion watching this and got such chills when I rewatched it recently. I, that's a really incredibly well done scene. I think yeah. actually for me in that movie, when he so he he has him put the the headphones on and he reads mm-hmm. the speech and he can't hear himself talking. And then, yeah. and then he just leaves him with the tape. And then mm-hmm. I, I, I love that scene because I don't like, it's such a natural thing to feel like this, te- the, the terror of like watching yourself do something yeah. like if like, uh, you know, if you have to watch yourself, like giving a speech, if someone's videotaped it, like it's hard to watch, even if you know you did a good job and this guy is terrified because he knows he thinks he knows that he's done an awful job with it. And he's pacing around the room. He's mad that this guy has put him in this position of making him do it and leaving it with yeah. him. Uh, and for me, it was a surprise. I, I didn't kind of see it going this way. But when he turns the tape on and he's speaking so perfectly, and the look in his eyes when he like realizes that what he thinks is impossible has just happened right in front of him, yeah, um, that's a great point. That that's a really great scene. I because to me, like when I think of the king's speech, I think of that scene yeah. first, and then I think of him in that tiny little room recording with that microphone. I can see it. Um, but for me, anyways, it's the scene when he first realizes, like, oh my god, I could maybe actually do this when he struggled yeah. with it so hard, and um, I don't know, I. They're, they're both such great scenes, and I, I love that movie in general. Yeah, that's that is one of my favorite movies of the past decade. I think it's interesting what you point out because there are a few others. I'm not sure that they're necessarily going to come up in the examples I'm giving here, but um, just generally speaking, where there's kind of two moments. There's the "Hey, we can do this" or "I can do this" moment, and then the "I did this" moment. Yeah, and I think you're right. I think in a lot of cases, the "Hey, we can do this" moment is is just as thrilling. Like for me with Cinderella Man. That moment when you see the look in Paul Giamatti's eyes ringside and he starts looking around like, oh, my God, Jimmy might win this fight is just, whoa, that's that's pretty cool, too. When people allow themselves to believe that yeah. that what they dream or what they, they've hoped for or what they've yearned for for so long can actually become a possibility. Yeah. This is a this is a perfect example of it. Um well, I'm <laughs> like I said, I'm getting actual goosebumps. That's a good one. Yeah, I got this a lot while doing the research. I felt a lot of goosebumps. <laughs> yeah, that's a. Uh, I love I, now. I now I really want to watch that. Um, yeah, that puts us past number seven. Did you prepare yep. a not top three? How do you even How do you even go about it? You know, I didn't think that that was really going to work on this one. The best, the closest I can think of is like. <laughs> moments that were supposed to give you goosebumps. Yeah, I suppose that that's and true. just there, there's just, some of those just fell flat. Um, um, when Superman comes back in uh, Justice League, ugh. and I was like, "Oh my god, <laughs> fuck this guy! This is so stupid." I don't have to talk about 
Justice League. Are you sure you don't want to talk about Justice League? Um, yeah, that's fine. We don't have to talk about. Are you, do you want to talk about how they took Gal Gadot and took her from this great iconic character and then just turned her into a character where they show a close up of her butt every time they put her on screen? You don't want to talk about that. I didn't hate that. Um, I mean, I mean, she has she has a lovely behind, but she also has a great like character she's incredible and they've ruined her whatever we don't need to talk about justice league let's just move on <laughs> moving on all right well i want to just roll right into number six yeah, do six all right number six i know this is one that you love you and i actually experienced this together for the first time so i'm certain that you had goosebumps and i know i did too this is the last scene of the last episode of blackadder oh <laughs> um so so for those who don't know listening so and that's everyone. probably a lot of you yeah most of you blackadder is uh is sort of a monty python-esque sort of um british show from the the 80s um star <laughs> starring good friend rowan atkinson uh as well as a number of other actors and actresses who, who you would also know um, hugh laurie among them Yep, Hugh Laurie is a great example. Miranda Richardson, who played uh, Rita Skeeter. Um, so, so it's the show where he and a couple other characters recur over various historical periods. So each season takes place. One is like Elizabethan. Uh, one is is during the uh, um, the Regency. One is during <laughs> World War One. So this last season is during World War One. They're basically stuck uh, in a trench and slightly behind the lines for most of this this season. And the last episode, I think, is called Over the Top. And this is the episode when they're about to go over the top of the trench and they're finally going to charge. To be very clear, this is an incredibly silly show. Incredibly. Like, there's an entire elaborate bit about a turnip that looks like, and I quote, a thingy. Like, that's one of the funniest moments of the entire show is a turnip that looks like a thingy. <laughs> it's the the jumping Jews of Jerusalem <laughs> is like a recurring joke about a about a traveling dancing troupe. It's all silliness, uh, but this last season, um, it really kind of skewers the the absurdity of war. They they show the officers behind the lines. Just dining on good food while uh, Blackadder and his good friends are eating rats and water from the puddles. And this last episode shows them going over the top. And his good friend, Baldrick, is very famous for telling him he has a very cunning plan. And throughout the whole series... Blackadder is always telling him to shut up, basically, that his cunning plan doesn't isn't going to be funny or isn't going to be very cunning. And uh, Baldrick tells Blackadder he has a cunning plan to get them out of this, that they're not going to actually die going over the top. And Blackadder says, well, I'm afraid it'll have to wait. Whatever it was, I'm sure it was better than my plan to get out of this by pretending to be mad. I mean, who would have noticed another madman around here? And after he says that, he finally acknowledges Baldrick and how much he loves Baldrick, and they go over the top. And they shout as they go over. You see the gunfire coming at them, and then it just cuts to a, a green field uh, full of poppies. And it's just an incredible moment. 
It's chill-worthy, tear-worthy. These beloved characters who are famous for being so silly, making a commentary on the horrors of war better than pretty much anything I've ever seen. It's amazing, especially for a show that in its four seasons really never delivered like a really uh, heartfelt kind of emotion like that. At all. (laughs) At all. (laughs) Um, Not even when the Scarlet Pimpinel was killed. (laughs) Um, But all those things you said, the fact, you know, the commentary on war and um, Blackadder finally acknowledging that (laughs) the Paltrick had... Well, it's funny, though, because in the first... So the first season, it's medieval. Yes, that's important to note. And um, it's kind of a a full circle thing, because in the first season, Blackadder is a complete idiot, and Baldrick, though being lesser in stature actually comes up with several very cunning plans, and then they realize yeah. it's funnier for Bald- for Baldrick to be just a complete idiot yeah. and think he has cunning plans. So it's it's refreshing. <laughs> it's it's kind of fun to re- to see, like, cunning Baldrick again. Um, yeah. I don't know. For me, that scene, I love it because it's, like, it, it perfectly captures the kind of essence of the relationship where a lot of, I feel like guys especially do this, but all, all people do it, but where people are so antagonistic towards each other, but ultimately love each other very deeply. Yeah. Um, and like, you could always tell that Blackadder has an affinity for Baldrick and vice versa. Mm -hmm. Um, but hearing Blackadder, like in this time of reflection and uh, contemplating his own death, kind of opening up and, and confessing that kind of that feeling towards Baldrick made me very weepy and goosebumpy. Um, Yeah, that's a really good yeah. one. It it's too bad that more people don't know about Blackadder. Uh it's a really, really well put together show. It absolutely is. And I think um just two things I want to note about this selection. One is that it definitely straddles the line between just purely being kind of emotional and being goosebumpy, but I think it's such a triumphant moment for the characters, um, that I think I think it, it warrants this because I felt goosebumps in addition to also just feeling very misty-eyed. Um, the other thing I want to note is that it's one of the incredible things about this moment is it doesn't feel cheap. No. I, I was mentioning that I think the cheapness of just flipping a switch and trying to give me chills feels cheap and it, it kind of rings hollow. Even for a show that made its cut its teeth on ridiculous gags, this didn't feel cheap. It felt so earned because we, we stood with those characters for so long. Yeah, I completely agreed. Yeah. All right, number five. Uh, this is one, I, if I'm remembering correctly, you don't love this movie. Um, I'm going to give you, I think this is the quote from the book, uh, but the book or the movie both gave me chills. I remember reading this book much later than I think I was probably supposed to and connecting with it so deeply. I have a lot of very personal memories of this, so maybe this this is overstated a little bit, but I'm going with Perks of Being a Wallflower. And this is the passage from when uh, when Charlie goes through the tunnel. Um, and the quote is, This one moment when you know you're not a sad story. You are alive, and you stand up and see the lights on the buildings and everything that makes you wonder. And you're listening to that song and that drive with the people you love most in this world. In this moment, I swear, we are infinite. Oh, man. 
hit me right in the honey nut filios. <laughs> I just love that. For anybody who has ever, in any small or large way, felt lonely or alienated or somehow a little bit different, this was such a vindication of the outsiders. This whole book, whether it's the Emma Watson character Sam or whether it's um, nothing, uh, is his nickname Patrick, um, who's played by uh, what's his name there, the Flash now, um, Ezra Miller. Yeah, Ezra Miller. It's a celebration of the underdog and and the outsider, and to see Charlie with friends. Driving through that tunnel, and I think in the movie it's very, it's very clearly it's Pittsburgh. Um, I think the book doesn't. I mean, it, it's Pittsburgh, but it doesn't harp on it quite so much. It's sort of this weird ether. It's this sort of different space where he could be anywhere, and he's just driving through this tunnel and playing this song. Which I once again, I'm, I'm not sure that in the book, even at the time, it's defined what the the song is. In the movie, it's Heroes by David Bowie. Um, so it's this like really interesting sort of mythical space where this kid who had been really alone and had a really hard childhood has found these friends and found his place in the world. Goosebumps all day, every day. Yeah, you're right. I don't have as strong of a relationship with this book or this movie as you do. Um, but this one is, yeah, I think a lot of people can relate to to that kind of sentiment of, you know, finally feeling like you have a place with some people. And, um, I know at least in my, in my life, I've experienced that before. Uh, I think I read this book a little bit too late for it to have like a very profound impact on me. When did this, when was this book written? A long time ago. This is like, um, I mean, a long time ago, a long time ago for a, like a, young adults novel i think this was like the mid to late 90s really yeah yeah i only have i have read it when i was in college late in college so like mm-hmm. i think i i missed when did you would you when did you read it i read it in college really? too i when the when i saw that i remember it so like i said part of this is i have very nostalgic uh memory so caroline my girlfriend and i were watching some movie um it must have been the summer, I guess, but it would have been probably the fall or summer um, during or just after our freshman year of college, so 2011, and we saw the trailer for this, and it was set to the song It's Time by Imagine Dragons, so much before they were overexposed, and we didn't know the song. We were like, wow, that's a great song, and it had Emma Watson, and I just felt something watching the trailer. It was one of the better trailers I'd seen for a movie. And then I visited her in school, so her freshman year of college, our sophomore year of college, and we went to see it at Lincoln Center in New York City. And it just was like this, I, this whole memory is like wrapped in, uh, it, it's all in sepia tone for me. And it's kind of ironic, it, it connects with the movie when he talks about like seeing their parents and uh, seeing old pictures and realizing that, you know, one day we'll just be old pictures. And like this memory for me is like an old picture. And so I really connect, I really connect with it a lot. So I was probably, I was late to the game, but I, I felt everything I was supposed to feel. Wow. I can see it in your face. You really did get a lot out of it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know. It's going to be weird to argue these because like, it, 
uh, I feel like these are so, so personal. Like it's hard to, mm-hmm. to assign like a universal value to them. And it's going to be hard to argue against you after watching you describe that to me. But, uh, yeah, for me personally, not quite as big as an effect, but I definitely can see where you're coming from. And that's not to say, not to say that I didn't get anything out of that book or that movie. And that is a really well put together scene. Now, to be clear, I'm willing to be knocked off my spot, and there are plenty of other options, so don't you worry. We'll we'll have some stuff to discuss. That uh, that brings us to number four, so I'm just going to recap quickly where we're at. Uh, so number 10 is the suit of armor scene from Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. Number nine is when James J. Braddock is declared the new world champion in Cinderella Man. Number eight is the East Wind speech in his uh, final bow or last bow um, in Sherlock Holmes. Number seven is the finale of the King's speech. Number six is the series finale of Blackadder going over the top of the trench. Number five is the tunnel scene from Perks of Being a Wallflower. So I'm about to jump into number four. Number four, I'm going to keep going with cheese. I am, I'm getting cheesy here. Um, This is one that just, hits me right in the feels uh makes me fall in love with love have you seen uh the play or the film i think you have i'm almost certain actually you have once oh my god yeah you you went you went to iowa to see it didn't you beyonce allegis and myself uh yeah saw once in college um so i took Freshman year, I took a literature class. I'm doing I'm doing air quotes here. Yeah, we folks. had air quotes going here. It was a literature class that was about Irish film. Um, and so we watched... Oh, The Wind That Shakes the Barley, right? Didn't you watch that? Great movie. Yeah. Um, I really love that movie. <laughs> I remember that. <laughs> uh, but she was like, yeah, we're going to... We watched a lot of... We watched like four Bloody Sunday documentaries, uh, <laughs> which I did not hate. They were all very good. Yeah. Um, she was like, yeah, this one is like more of an indie, kind of an indie thing. Um, she, that was it. She was like, this is just kind of like a low budget thing. I, I think you'll enjoy it. She threw it on and we watched it over. I think we just, we just, it was like an, it was, it's a short movie. So we just watched it in one class. She just turned it on right when we got there and we watched it. I just, I was transfixed the first time I saw that movie. That movie is really something else. If you have an, like an hour and a half to spare, there's no better way to spend it. This is a really special movie. I saw it. Yeah, we saw it live in Des Moines. Um, and that was really great, too. That was a fun kind of communal experience. And seeing people play the music live was really special. Um, yeah. oh, what, I, I'm curious to hear which which scene you're thinking of in particular. Because there are a lot in that movie that just kind of make me lose it a little bit. Yeah, I turn into a damn puddle uh, most of this movie. So I think I think that's actually an interesting thing is for most of this movie, I think the moments are not goosebump moments. They're just puddle moments. I just turn into a little sap. Um, I, I am kind of a sap anyway, um, but they, they, they just bring that out in me. So I'm thinking of the end of the film, play, whatever, uh, when Guy is in New York and he is playing his guitar and girl is um is back in Dublin and she's playing her piano and they're both playing falling slowly. Oh. I just got I actually just got chills talking about it right now. It's one of the most incredible moments. For those of you who have not 
uh, who have not seen the play or the movie, it, it's as Kyle said, it's just it's incredible. It is the most in love I've ever felt during any sort of uh, literary or, or film or TV or whatever experience. And this just caps it. I, I we probably should have put a spoiler alert to start this, but um, the story does not end exactly happily it doesn't exactly end unhappily either but um this couple that you've invested an awful lot in and there's this song that comes back time and again in the show it's falling slowly it's beautiful beautiful song and the whole show ends with um them playing this song separately and it's oof it, but you're right though it's 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 very sad the first time you watch it you have you're my inclination at least to start was to be very upset at how it ends yeah but it's it's really beautiful and it's and it's special and i think uh it's kind of the the idea that just like something isn't beautiful because it lasts like what they have is it's brief and they kind of go their separate ways but what they each got out of it is really prolific for them and important for them absolutely um i like not using each other but like finding someone for a time to get you through you know a period that you need to and also yeah. connecting with music um with some really beautifully written stuff this movie's amazing i for me you beautiful bastard you've totally touched on i think what the the key to this is is it's that's why i think that's why this is a, a goosebump moment and not a crying moment it's because it's telling you that this relationship did something for them and unlocked something for them. Like it unlocked access to love and, and the next thing for them. Yeah. Yeah. It's, 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 that's a special, special moment. I, one other moment I, I just love in this film and it's not a sad moment. Um, I don't know if you remember, but he puts together like, a um, like they, they get together and they record like an album mm-hmm. and yep guy to be this this guy's name is not guy we just don't know no, his name no. so he's just the guy yeah. he plays the tape for his dad and his yeah. dad is a hoover fixer he just fixes yep. hoovers hoover fix my hoover and uh they're just sitting in like this crappy kitchen that his dad lives in they both live in this house they're sitting on stools and he's got this lame little tape cassette and he plays it for him and they turn it off and he's like looking at his dad expectantly and his dad just puts his hand on his ID and goes, it's good, son. And he just tells him it's good. Oh, and, man, that's... You may have... I don't know if you've topped it, but that might be the moment. It's good, son. God, now his I'm, dad is not oh. a talker, and just the way he puts his hand on his on his knee and tells him it's good, and then the guy's look back tells you everything you need to know. Like, this is not a dad that's, that's flippant with compliments. And yeah. the fact that he's basically condoning his... His, his dream to take his music and leave because he probably, you know, has a lot to do with supporting his father and his dad is telling him, this is important. This is what you need to do regardless yeah. of our relationship. And um, that's another moment for me that the first time I saw it, it, it hit me real hard. And oh, I haven't man. watched that movie in a couple of years. and I really ought to. Oh, well done, Mike. That's a fantastic film. And those are yeah. two really good moments. I don't know. I'll have to think about it a little bit. Which of those I get goosebumpier for? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm thinking about it now. I'm thinking about it. All right, so we're about to hop into the top three. I am gonna promise you, none of the top three are going to surprise you 
at all. I, I know you know one of I them. know I know one. You'd, I think I know... You'd be a fool. I think you know number one. I think one. I know number one. Um, yeah. I would be shocked if I didn't. Yeah. I suspect I know another one of the top three. Interesting. Okay. If it's not... Well, we'll see. Uh, all right. We'll find out in a moment. I've got one that if it's not in the top three, I'm going to lobby hard for being up here. So we'll see if you if okay. you got it, too. All right. Number three. This one's not going to surprise you. I really wish we could play the clip because I'm just not going to do it justice. Number three is uh, at the gates of Mordor, uh, Aragorn's speech. Yes. I, I have a feeling you knew this one was coming. This is... Uh, yeah, I, I had a feeling. This is not the one that I was going to lobby hard for, um, because I figured you'd have it, but, uh, yeah, wow, this is perfect. Um, this is one of the best speeches of all time. Ever, ever. I, like I said, I tried to avoid war, generally, but this had to be on here. You know, Mike, there will come a day. Oh, there may come a day. I'm going to read it real quick. All right. This is And this is from the film version, uh, just to be clear. Sons of Gondor, of Rohan, my brothers, I see in your eyes the same fear that would take the heart of me. A day may come when the courage of men fails. I'm getting chills oh right now. God. When we forsake our friends and ba- break all bonds of fellowship. But it is not this day. An hour of wolves and shattered shields when the age of men comes crashing down. Oh my God. But it is not this day. This day we fight. By all that you hold dear on this good earth, I bid you stand, men of the West. I'm erupting. I'm erupting in chills right now. I might cry. I'm like, I'm losing it right now. Oh, it's beautiful. Um, It's just beautiful. And if you remember, it it switches back and forth between him kind of riding on his horse at the front of the, at the front of the, you know, the the column and saying this but intermittently it's showing sam and frodo on the slopes of mount doom hell is around them these two like guys are crawling doing everything they can to deliver this ring aragorn is rallying these guys this is and you you said it earlier like um sometimes to get the best kind of chill you need to have known a character you need to have it developed and yeah aragorn's arc as a character this guy that is at first known as Strider and just kind of hangs out in the shadows at the beginning of the fellowship to the end of Return of the King, basically delivering this speech at the end of the world. Uh, yes, that's a good. That's a good way. Of putting like it. at the literally at the edge of the world, looking over the edge, you know, like into into what awaits. Um, I think like this culminating point for Aragorn, a character that we all come to to really love as the series goes as the series goes on is really cathartic for us as viewers and seeing it at the same time as Sam and Frodo reaching the end of this 12 hour journey for us, <laughs> several year journey for them. Yeah. Um, and this, I, this, even when quoting this speech as a joke, talking about other things, I can get chills. Yes, we do. We do use that a lot to be clear. Like the, but it is not this day is a great refrain. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah, I think I think to kind of piggyback off what you're saying there, I think the investment of these characters that we've put into these characters is such a huge part of this. But I think part of what's really cool is the sort of the democratic ideal of this story. The the idea is that it, it can just be the hobbit. Like it, it can just be the little hobbit who saves the world. And while Aragorn is not just the little hobbit, he's he's far more of like the chosen one archetype. Um 
he does rise in our in our reading from basically nobody and what i think this scene does really well it contextualizes this war this was something that uh, i i heard somebody commenting about the just as a sidebar the latest star wars film that uh, and Rogue One as well, that it does a nice job of sort of putting you on the ground with the people who actually fought this conflict. And like you said, this is the edge of the world. This is like the apocalypse. We are at the gates of hell. And we have who is soon to be the king of men leading all of these men. But it doesn't lose sight of the very human cost of this war. Like he's saying to all of these men who he knows will someday probably hate him or or want to start their own kingdom. And he says, that's coming. That is all coming. I understand you have human concerns. You have families who are waiting back home for you. But that's, that's not what we can't think about that right now. That's not something we can think about. We have to think about saving all of mankind. Um, And that's, that's just really powerfully done here is I know you all have duties that go far beyond what I'm asking of you, but, we can't attend to those duties until we do this one thing, until we save the world. We men of the West. I would have gladly followed Aragorn to my death. Uh, oh, absolutely. I still would. Even if, if or, or Viggo Mortensen, if he were to yes, arrive. If my, he were to say this to, to me. Yeah. Um, yeah, I can't say enough about it. I, I mean, this movie won Best Picture, and this is a big part yeah, of that movie. Deservedly so. Um, yeah. I, yeah. I, <laughs> I'm speechless. This is I know. This is a great one. I, I I'm not I'm not gonna argue with it for it being in the top three. So, certainly. No, this is this one is uh, I'll I mean I'm not really gonna have to plant a flag here, but this one's this one's top three, no questions. Um, number two, I, I picked one moment from uh, a pretty iconic television show. There are a lot of moments, uh, but this is um, this is the one I chose. I chose hold the door. Oh, <laughs> so uh, from from the very famous the door episode of season six, I believe it is of Game of Thrones. Okay, spoilers, spoilers, yeah, spoilers, spoilers all around. We're gonna talk all about it. So spoilers, yeah, yeah spoilers, spoilers, spoilers. So uh, throughout the entire series, we know of a character named Hodor, who is a simple giant uh, who lives in Winterfell. And so we're introduced to him very early in both the, the book series and the film or in the television show. And all he can say, the only thing he's capable of saying is his name Hodor. And he says Hodor with different emphasis. And it's clear that people kind of understand him to mean different things. Like there's an excited Hodor, Hodor. And then there's sort of Hodor. Hodor. But he doesn't say anything other than this. And really, the only other detail we know about him is that he has an incredibly large penis. This big man. Um, yeah, we, we get a pretty, we get that pretty clearly told to us by uh, Nymphadora Tonks, um, who, who I suppose plays a wildling, but really she's just Tonks from Harry Potter. <laughs> and, uh, so that's really all we know about him. And apparently George R.R. Martin had big plans for this character all along, that the name Hodor was always supposed to be hold the door, um, kind of garbled together. This episode, we see Hodor, who has taken a very long journey, very long journey with uh, Brandon Stark, as well as Jojen and Mira Reed, um, as well as Tonks, the wildling. And he has carried 
Brandon on his back for many a mile and he's protected who will likely become the most or one of the most important people in this entire universe over the next season or so and in the final two books for basically no nothing in return he gets nothing he does it purely out of a sense of service or simply because he can't do anything else because um he's simple and we finally learn why in this weird time warpy thing we see Hodor as a young boy um having a fit all while he is holding the door and he is holding the door in this strange tree fort to protect Brandon Stark from a horde of ice zombies who are coming to kill him and I know this setup sounds insane you're saying what the hell are you talking about? How could this possibly give somebody goosebumps? I challenge you, go to YouTube and search Hold the Door. Don't cry. Try not to cry and try not to get a massive eruption of goosebumps. It, unreal. The, this was filmed so perfectly. And that scene of him fading out as he's dying, saying, Hold the door. Hold the door. And Ugh. slowly <laughs> Hold the Door turns into Hodor is just... Too much. It's too much. It's especially too much because we know that Hodor knows the entire time. Correct. That this is going to happen. Yep. He knows because as a kid, you can see as a child, as this happens to him, like he can see what's, what's going on and he knows it's coming. And even though he's simple, he's clearly a, a still a, a complex person from an emotional standpoint, or at least enough so that he can, you know, <laughs> be afraid of his own death, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, and doing it anyways for for Bran. And that whole idea of knowing one's fate and going through with it anyways is really touching, especially for a character like Hodor, who, in a sense, never had a choice Mm-hmm. Um, but also, you know, would do it a thousand times for Bran. Um, Absolutely, that's a really special moment. Um, it's. I feel like if you didn't watch the show and don't know what we're talking about, you can't describe it. Like, I, I remember trying to explain this moment to to someone who doesn't watch the show, and then just being very confused by it. And that's fair. Like, it's kind of a confusing thing. But yeah, what's not confusing is how how I felt while watching it. I was knowing. Yeah. We're worth noting that our experience of watching it. So Kyle and I, and a couple of our friends, uh, Jameson, Mike and Alex, uh, friends of the pod. So we all did sort of remote watching because we were in different places around the country, but we'd watch it together in college. So we would set up like a, a Google chat or whatever the hell it's called and watch it like together where we were watching it, but just sort of reacting together. We all cried. We are all 22, I guess, 23-year-old dudes at the time, and we every single one of us was crying. Um, but as I said, importantly, at the beginning of this, it wasn't just tears. We, we cried, but we felt thrilled. And this was, like Kyle said, it's really hard to describe, but my God, this was all about the possibility of storytelling and the possibility of the world, like the idea, like you said, that a person could know their fate and still do the honorable thing. It's this liberating idea of 
it, it takes you out of your cynical place that you often could exist in. It was really amazing idea. And I think whether we all would have spoken of it in that way at the time or not, that's what we were all feeling. Absolutely. Um, I actually have another moment from Game of Thrones yeah. that I would argue is probably goosebumpier. I wonder if it's okay. the same one you seem to be thinking of. I have a feeling we're probably thinking of the same one. Let, what's, why don't we just talk about it really quickly and then come back to it later. Um, are you thinking of the uh, Jon Snow reveal? No. I'm not oh. thinking of the Jon Snow oh, boy. reveal. Because the Jon Snow reveal... Oh, man, that, that got some serious goosebumps watching that. <laughs> no, I, I I did, too. It's it's really well done. It's very special. The fact that it, like, everyone, it, it was very cathartic to, to speculate about this for years and then finally have it happen. Yeah. Um, I like that moment a lot. For me, the goosebumpiest moment on this show is at the end of Hard Home when the Night King... Oh. Uh, like John and his small band of cohorts are on the last boat out onto the water. And the night King, after this ridiculous battle just stands kind of on the shore and lets him go kind of this sign of you can like, where are you going to go? You know, and just slowly lifts his arms and looks at John. And then all those people that he had just met and like fought to, you know, had to become very close with very quickly to fight this horde of zombies all had been killed and now all of a sudden are added to the ranks of this army that we had seen kind of tangentially tangentially up till now. But now like we finally understand the seriousness of what's yeah. been building in this show for a very long time up to this point and just understand and the, the kid Harrington does a great job of just the look in his eyes of this look of hopelessness and terror. Like what are, what am I supposed to do against a force like this that can just raise an army of dead people. Um, Oh, man. That's not the season finale, but in classic Game of Thrones fashion, it's the second to last. And I just remember being really wiped out after watching that scene because that's a very emotional, like, 20 minutes of TV. Mm -hmm. Uh, And to culminate in that gave me some serious goosebumps. Yeah, totally. All right, well, we'll talk about that one. Uh, when we come back around. So number one, I have a, a strong feeling you you know what number one is going to be. Yeah. The ultimate uh, Goosebumps moment for me in film, and I think for a lot of people, the end of the absolute masterpiece, The Dark Knight. So this is the end after uh, Batman, Bruce Wayne, has just saved... Uh, Lieutenant, I'm going back in the day here, Commissioner Gordon uh, and his son from Harvey Dent, a.k.a. Two-Face, and he has knocked Two-Face off the building. Two-Face dies, and he's talking, Bruce Wayne is talking to uh, Commissioner Gordon about what they're going to do here. And Commissioner Gordon says, you know, couple people dead two of them cops you can't just sweep that under the rug and batman says you know but the joker can't win and i as a viewer you're like yeah okay what what are you suggesting here and for me as i was watching this i slowly started to realize what was happening i was like well if the joker didn't do it and harvey dent did it but harvey dent is dead and they can't let Harvey Dent take credit for this. Who's going to take the... Oh, no. 
And I realized that Batman was suggesting he take the rap. And it was this really incredible ending because we had just been put through the ringer where I at least, I truly believed that Batman had been killed about five minutes earlier. I thought, wow, this is amazing. This is Christopher Nolan. We've never had a director of this caliber direct a movie like this. He just killed Batman. Wow, that sucks. Um, but wow, what in great, in service of something great. Um, and then he isn't dead. He saves the day. But we as viewers realize that saving the day is not nearly enough in this world, in the world of the moral and emotional uh, and political stakes of The Dark Knight. It's not nearly enough. Um, so I'm going to read the quote that uh, Commissioner Gordon says to his son because he tells his son that we're going to have to chase him. And his son says, why? He didn't do anything wrong. And so then Gordon says, he's the hero Gotham deserves, but not the one it needs right now. So we'll hunt him because he can take it because he's not our hero. He's a silent guardian, a watchful protector, a dark knight. And as this is happening, you see a broken Bruce Wayne slash Batman being chased by a pack of police German shepherds. He's running towards his motorcycle. He hops on it. He escapes the dogs. The music is swelling. You as a viewer are picking up the pieces of your brain matter and putting them back together. You're realizing the cost of what he's saying, that his legacy will be forever ruined, that he'll be forever hated for what he's supposed to have done. The Hans Zimmer score starts really coming in, and he says, a silent guardian, a watchful protector, a dark knight. And then all of a sudden you hear, do, do, do. And well, it is the most goosebump inducing moment in film history. Yeah, I, I agree with you. For me, that's the one. I, I love how right at the end, when the when the score comes in, he's silhouetted against... He's coming out of that tunnel. Oh, yep. Um, but you're right, how immediately after he says it, he's being chased literally like through this field, and th- immediately he's become a pariah. This is a recurring theme in this movie, and it's it's good to see him make a full transition because earlier in the film um the joker says you know for every day that the the batman doesn't reveal his identity i'm gonna kill a person and alfred is alfred's advice to bruce is just keep going until you find him and bruce wayne and his in his guilt says i can't you know i can't do that and alfred says well that's the whole point of the batman like the batman can do things that you can't and I think that's kind of ties ties to, you know, it shows that Bruce and Batman aren't separate entities necessarily at that point. And by the end of the movie, he's taken Alfred's advice to heart and understands that the whole point of Batman, the whole point of a symbol, and the whole reason he wears a mask is that the Batman could be anybody, and therefore the Batman can take these things that Bruce Wayne can't. And understanding that and letting go, basically, for a long time, we find out in the next movie giving up this thing that's become such a part of him is a real sacrifice for him. The sacrifice. Yeah. It turns out that it's, we, we kind of go on this journey with him where we think the sacrifice is giving up his cushy playboy life. It is so not the sacrifice at all. It's, it's giving this thing up, which is consumed him, which is 
this daily, nightly punishment where he sort of hollows himself out to uh, a lot of things, to help people, to heal an old wound for himself. Uh, I was actually talking about The Dark Knight with my dad. uh, I think it was this morning. I I was maybe talking about the pod. And I... uh, we were talking about what elevates it, why it's it's. Oh, we were talking about it in relation to Star Wars and and uh, Kylo Ren and great villains. And um, I think what my dad and I were saying was a big part of why this film is so compelling is that the test to which Bruce Wayne is subjected is pure. It's it's the Joker says, if you don't do this, then I do this. If you do this, I do this. They're very clear rules meant to push him to his absolute limits and throughout the film in many cases he makes the wrong choice so going uh and he tries to save rachel dawes when given the option to save rachel or to save harvey dent he tries to save rachel now it turns out that the joker was screwing with him and he actually saves harvey dent but he made the wrong choice it was not the right choice to save rachel dawes and for that he's eternally punished because he has to look at the scarred, burnt face of the man he should have tried to save from the beginning, all while still dealing with the grief of the death of the woman he loves and her dying largely because of him. But he makes the wrong choice there. And then when he's about to, and I think one of the greatest scenes in the movie, he's about to give himself up in a press conference when they say that the Batman is going to be revealed and he's getting ready to step up onto the stage, and Harvey Dent pretends that he's the Batman. That was the wrong choice for Bruce Wayne to reveal himself, because it was the selfish choice. He was trying to make the choice that would assuage his guilt most effectively. And so throughout the movie, we see this very human person struggling to to be the sin eater, struggling to be that that hero that nobody really wants, and he can't do it. But in the end, he does do it. In this moment, he does it, and he rises up to something so far beyond what we could imagine, and it's it's incredible. I love it, and I, <laughs> I'm glad that you have gotten the chance to talk about the Dark Knight in this way because you love the Dark Knight more than anybody, much in the same way that you love Sherlock more than anybody I know. Your love for the Dark Knight is unparalleled. Thank you, my friend. I think what I've realized from doing this is I love a lot of things a lot. I like the. This is this was one topic about which I'm very passionate because um, I'm there. I'm totally transported. This is a very Mike. This is a very Mike topic, and I'm loving every second of it. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. So I'm gonna run through our top ten. Um, sorry, people. This is a long one. We don't care. Uh, I'll run through the top ten and then give you some of the honorable mentions, which I will run through briefly. So number ten, suits of armor, end of Harry Potter. Number nine, Cinderella Man. Number eight, Sherlock Holmes and the East Wind. Number seven, King's Speech finale. Number six, the Black Adder finale. Number five, the perks of being a wallflower tunnel scene. Number four, falling slowly from once. Number three, Aragorn's speech, Return of the King. Number two, hold the door. Number one, the Dark Knight. So that is the top ten as it stands right now. I'm going to run you through some of the uh, honorables. I'm actually going to start uh, quick ones, a uh, couple of other Batman possibilities that I, I thought were pretty awesome. Uh, one is Batman Begins uh, when Bruce Wayne goes into the cave underneath Wayne Manor for the first time and a cloud of bats engulfs oh. him. <laughs> and he's standing there with a light in his hand and then he stands up. Uh, 
incredible. We don't, we don't have to break it all down, but that's just an incredible moment. Um, and then a couple other from The Dark Knight Rises, which I think falls into a little bit more of slightly cheaper, uh, but still really gives me the, the feels. Uh, when all the lights go out in the tunnel and you realize that Batman has returned and he comes uh, to save the day after uh, the robbery of the stock exchange. And then, of course, the moment when Bruce Wayne emerges from that mysterious Middle Eastern pit, which is very confusing, but I love it anyway. I, I shame who put this here, details, but yeah, it's yeah, yeah it's we'll still good. Put him here um, when moment. he does it, makes the climb as the child did without the rope and makes it out. Um, all right, I'm I'm seriously, I got a lot of honorable mentions. Just gonna go 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 right through. Uh, when Ryan or whatever her name is, Sandra Bullock returns to Earth in Gravity. Um, in 2001, Space Odyssey, when the apes smash the skull as that very famous music plays. Uh, Jerry Maguire, when Renee Zellweger says, you had me at hello. Um, Miracle. Do you believe in miracles? Miracles on my yes. list, too. Yeah. Um, Braveheart, the uh, they'll never take our freedom speech. Sure. Scent of a woman, the... Hooah! Speech. Uh, the look on Lieutenant Caffey's face when he realizes that he has gotten Colonel Jessup. Uh, once he realizes that he he did admit he ordered the code red. Um, this one, I know this one's near and dear to both of our hearts. Uh, the ending of 310 to Yuma. Yeah. Not the ending ending, yeah. uh, which is depressing. But um, when Christian Bale... Dan Evans finally gets to be the hero his his son deserves and the one he needs right now. Oh, that's also um, on my list. Yeah, yeah. The uh, I, I, this one is kind of pick your pick your poison here. Either the floating down to the beach or the setting the play in a fire. Uh, Tom Hardy at the end of Dunkirk. Mm. The Breaking Bad scene when um, Walt is talking to Skyler and. He says, I did it for me. When he finally admits that the reason he did all that was because uh, he's a selfish bastard. All right, and then I'm just, real quick, just a couple more. These ones are from series <laughs> that I love. Uh, this one I think should be a real contender because, man, this one gives me the chills. The end of Born Ultimatum uh, when Jason is in the water and we're hearing the news report about how Jason Bourne has been killed. And he's just floating slowly down into the water. I think, I want to say it's like the East River in New York. And then all of a sudden, we see him kick and we hear that amazing uh, soundtrack to Bourne. It, unbelievable. Um, the scene in Skyfall when James goes to that garage and retrieves the Aston Martin oh. DB5. Oh my that's god! That's just like a that's just a fan boner. I don't know if that's it's a, a fan it's a fan boner, but man, that gives you it's a, quite oh, a boner, that. quite a boner, no doubt. It's quite a boner. Um, the this one is from a not a great movie, but a, a pretty chill worthy moment. Um, when Darth Vader is revealed in Revenge of the Sith, mm. when we first hear the breathing for the first time, um, the Snape reveal from Harry Potter. And then uh, Wonder Woman jumping out of the trench, so somewhat akin to the uh, Black Adder. And then finally, and this is another one that I think, like Bourne, deserves serious consideration, I, like really serious consideration, the end of The Godfather when uh, 
Kay is looking at the office where her husband Michael transformed from marine hero to um, head of the mafia clan. As the door slowly closes, as one of his henchmen closes the door and you see him sitting at the desk where Don Corleone used to sit. And you see the look on her face, on Diane Keaton's face, realizing <laughs> the monster he's become. That's a that's a pretty unbelievable moment that I think presages the whole Breaking Bad arc where we realize that characters in film don't have to be stagnant, that this really golden boy could turn into one of the most ruthless people in film history was this really eye-opening moment. So that's it. Done. Go. Whew, that was fun. I, I kind of like that Whew. rapid fire. <laughs> that was good. Um. A lot of feels. I've got a couple here. You you listed a couple that I had been thinking okay. about. Sorry, I didn't mean to step no, on No, that's okay. Um, Miracle is one of the greatest sports moments ever. Yeah. Um, I wasn't sure how to judge that one because it's a real life thing. I, I, I tried to put it lo- not on the list because it was a real life thing, but mm. I'm not sure. When Herb talk. Brooks is in the back by himself and you can hear I the know. stadium behind him, though. Man. I know. That's, that's a good point because that's a very filmic moment. Yeah. 310 to Yuma is amazing, and I don't want to spoil it for anybody because you should watch this movie. No, just spoil it. I, I can't do it. But the the just the the relationship between I, obviously we've spoiled everything, Kyle. All this is but like I, end of movie. But I really love this this scene, and I think okay, it deserves right. to be seen uh, without being ruined. And okay. and like you're unlike like if you didn't watch Game of Thrones, you probably know about Hodor. Anyways, like no one is like gonna accidentally spoil 310 to Yuma for you. Um, that's fair. Russell Crowe, the, his emotional development through that movie and his relationship with Christian Bale is really something special. I don't know if it belongs on this list, but it's it, this is my personal list that's very yeah. high on it. Let's just say it goes from him stabbing a guy with a rudimentary fork many times in the neck <sighs> to us as an audience giving a shit about him. Yeah, very much. Um, I, I, I put a lot more stock into the Snape reveal than you do. Uh, mm. After all this time... Uh, oh, words. Always. Oh my God! Beautiful, beautiful. Yeah. Um, I might stump for that one. I, I like. I love the the knights. The knights jumping down from the the ramparts. But Snape. Um, Snape is such a complex and awesome character in that series. Yeah. Um, I already mentioned Hard Home. Um, this is just a really awfully sad one, and really well <laughs> executed from a film perspective, and also just fresh in my mind. But La La Land, when um, Emma Stone yeah. is in the in the club, and they kind of run through what you know, like the whole "what it could have been" montage, mm-hmm. bawling. Um, that's a really well put together scene. Um, I, you know, how much I love this movie. I know you do too. But uh, I think there are a couple scenes in Interstellar that really make my yeah. blood turn cold when uh, they're on that planet and they realize that the mountains in the distance are actually a very large wave in the way that um, Zimmer's, he's got the clock ticking in the background and then, oh man. Um, also, back-to-back, these back-to-back scenes hit in conjunction are really moving for me when he's speeding away from his home and looking at his daughter in the rear view and barely able to keep himself from crying as he doesn't know if he's ever going to see his family again. And then, like, they very quickly go through the launch sequence. He's he's in space. Yeah. And then the very next scene, they cut to this, like, wide pan of deep space and their ship just, boop, 
blinking. The enormity of the moment it, it, from going from his little farm in wherever. Let's that, pretend it's Kansas, and, and then he's in space. That gives me chills every time. I oh, yeah. I I can't get over that one, and I, I, I'd i like to stump for that one maybe a little bit. I'd really love yeah. it. Um, that particular scene is that sequence is the one you think, like the driving away from home and then suddenly being in deep space. That scene... For all of Interstellar's faults, that scene, like seeing it the first time, made me feel emotions so strongly that I don't often get while watching film or just at all. Yeah. Um, I, I, I can remember feeling the way I did when I saw that the first time very distinctly. Um, and this one, I am adamant, must be on the list, and I think it should be high on the list. Is you mentioned Star Wars? I like the Vader, the Vader reveal. Where's Padme? Yeah. Um, but and I just watched this the other day in anticipation of the Last Jedi. Um, on Dagobah, Luke is souring on his training. Yeah, uh, he's he's discouraged, and he, Yoda tells Luke, you know, why don't you just pull your X-wing out of the water? Don't try to do it. Do or do not. There is no try. Yeah, there is no try. Uh, and Luke, it, well, why bother? It can't be done. It's impossible. And then Yoda, without a word, just closes his eyes and pulls this fucking huge ship out of the murk. And the way they shoot it, the the ship's coming out of the water and the camera's behind it. And Yoda is very small in the in the background. And Luke's kind of looking up at it, like under the bridge of the, the fighter, basically. Yeah. That shot, that scene is really, really well shot. It's kind of like we talked about um, earlier with the King's speech. Not necessarily the moment when you do what you've wanted to do, but the moment that you realize that what you want to do is actually possible. Yeah, Yoda bringing Luke into this greater world of the Force and what it means. Um, this idea that even you know the smallest hero, Yoda, this tiny little green guy, can lift a, a starfighter out of this bog. Empire is- I really like that pick because I was thinking that it, as I was doing this, I was like, there's not, I don't feel a lot of Star Wars and that feels wrong. And I think part of it has to do with the nature of the series in that it's, it's kind of more of these extended notes and less of these sort of singular moments, but that's a great pick. I, I refuse to allow this to not be on the list, and yeah, I, that's a I, that's a great pick, and I think it stands well for a lot of Star Wars. Yeah, because you're right; like there aren't that many heavy emotional sequences in Star Wars. It's it's the little kind of moments of interaction between the characters yeah. that I think makes those movies so great. But that's but that's part of what we're getting at here is that this isn't just about like I feel overwhelmed by emotion. It's I feel some sort of sense of something greater than myself. And I think that this is exactly it. It's when Luke realizes he's participating in an order that's united by something. Like the force is real and it and it unites all of us. Um just a quick one. I don't I, I don't want to heavy spoiler alert for a recent thing. There is a there is a potential contender from a new Star Wars moment. Oh. Um let's let's i'll just say hyperspace yeah yeah that was even with the controversy surrounding the uh the legality of that maneuver um yeah that well we talked about this the other day major dick move but awesome yeah we talked about the we talked about the other day just like how what a departure it is from normal standard procedure in a star wars movie and how unique that was in terms of film in general the way the the way the score the audience actually gasped it was 
Like I, that I, I, audible gasp in the theater when that. Yeah, happened. exactly. That was one of those times when it, it's really good to see a movie as a community because yeah, everyone at the same time just. Um. Yeah. Anyways, can I actually throw one more? Because I want you to finish this piece because this is your piece. I have one more that I just thought of. Um, potentially as an alternate to the. Uh, I don't know if this even deserves inclusion, but alternate to the Dunkirk Tom Hardy piece. Um, the moment when, oh man, when um, you realize that the the kid who died on the boat, all he he says that all he ever wanted was to be in the newspaper, and as you see uh, the tracking shot going closer to the newsstand, oh. and you're like, what's happening? And then you see the guy open the newspaper and you see the picture of him and it, it says like hero of Dunkirk. I I mean, I, I cried in the theater. I, I lost my shit. But I also, in addition to crying, I just got that feeling. Like, wow. Wow. Because that was a real sack. I don't know that that specific story is real. I'm sure it's, it's fictionalized. But this was a real sacrifice that real people made. Wow. So continue. Um... That was actually the last one on my list. No, it wasn't. Yeah, Are you serious? That's the end of my oh, list. I, that actual, that exact thing? Oh, no, no, sorry. The the Star Wars one was the end of my oh, list. Oh, I was so like, I just stole your last one? No, that would have been really spectacular. Yeah. Uh, no, I, I actually, I, that's obviously a wonderful moment. I I would say this, the Tom Hardy one is better. Yeah, the Tom Hardy one is better, but still. Um, Let's... I don't want to hustle, but we gotta we gotta move a little bit. We're we're encroaching <laughs> on a pretty long podcast here. Yeah, I want I want the X Wing. I want Dagobah to be. Yeah, a, I think agreed. You can have that one. Can we put it? Wait, top what? I, I want it to be top three. Oh boy! Oh boy! Yeah, I think it deserves to be that high. Uh, I would put it. I think I would. I don't think Aragorn deserves to be out of the top three. I, I don't think he, he deserves to be above that one so i would i would switch it and put um lord of the rings at two and then star wars at three and then shift everything down and put uh hold the door at four um how do you feel about that i could get down with that i think i just think the epicness of aragorn's speech puts it above hold the door for me um especially since i I'm not gonna lobby for it too hard because I think it's 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 a good it's up for debate and I I think I think hard home is actually a better goosebumps moment for me it's two it's two totally different emotions and two different two incredibly different yeah. goosebumps to have but like the the Aragorn speech is by like far and away the best goosebump moment of that trilogy yeah. um and I think the Hodor one is one of of several very good ones but maybe not top three of all time ones. Um, I think that, well, what do you see as vulnerable? Are there any in the list that you think like, yeah, I don't know. I, um, I'm obviously, it's hard to say for me cause I don't, I've never seen Cinderella man. Yeah. Cinderella man. That's fair. I, th- that sort of stands as a proxy for boxing movies, but yeah. I'm, I'm willing to give that. I'm willing to give that one up. I just love that movie. I think we should pick one British World War One moment. <laughs> <laughs> there are a lot more that I do love. Um, interesting. Okay, so we got to pick either Black Adder or um, or uh, the East Wind. I think we should pick one of those. I think they're very similar. 
they're they're different. We discussed how they're different. If I had to say one or the other, I think I think I think cultural relevance is a factor here, and I yeah. think Blackadder being so niche and so a part of. I mean, we watched that show. We watched that show end very near the end of our senior year. Yeah. There's a lot of emotional. Uh, yeah, we were we were in our own little trench with our buddies. Like it was our little crew in in our friend Dylan's room, and th- uh, that's why that's why it was so important. We were in kind of an emotionally vulnerable state. Yeah, yes, to say the least. That's why that show rings so true for us in that moment specifically. Yeah. I would move it down for the sake of this list being a universal one. Okay. Uh, I might I would put that as like a a me and Mike. Very special honorable mention, yeah. Um, and probably remove it from the list, with okay. the understanding that I, I love it and have a very strong personal connection to it. Fair, I'm down with those moves. Um, I would like to move Harry Potter up. Okay, and you want Snape? I want Snape. Yeah, I'll give you Snape. I know I'm being. I seem like I'm being very accommodating, but I think your your points are good. I'm I'm with that. I love I I love that. I love the knights. I love the whole concept of defending this place that has become a home for Harry. But realizing the sacrifice and the pain and the emotion that Snape has gone through this whole series and been such a complex character, um, I think carries a little more weight for me. And yeah, so that's why I'm, that's I'm, yep. That's why I'm going to lobby for it. I'm down. Why don't we put it so with Blackadder gone? That moves King's Speech up to six. Sher- mm-hmm. Sherlock up to. How do you feel about moving Harry Potter over Sherlock? I feel good about that. Yeah, yeah. I think from a cultural point of view, that makes sense. Um, the fact that the Sherlock one's been adapted to film, but not in such a chilling way as a lot of these other movies. Yeah, it's not it doesn't have its its movie moment quite as powerfully as that it uh, necessarily needs does. to, and I don't wanna I don't wanna be in the camp of person that thinks that it needs to, but I think that that really does play a factor here. It would still be pretty cool, yeah. Um yeah, for sure. Why don't we put why don't we put Harry Potter at seven then? Okay, and so are we for now at least keeping falling slowly perks I like, and King's speech. I like once exactly where it is. I like you the way you, the, I don't know, watching you watching you talk about perks for me personally it's probably not this high on the list, but watching you talk about it. I could be I mean, do you want to do you want to discuss maybe shifting it a couple couple down like with King's speech and Harry Potter? I feel good about it staying where it is. And part of that is because I think that I am not the only person who feels this strongly about this. Yeah. I think there are people who had tougher uh, high school experiences than I who feel much more strongly about this than I do. Sure. sure. I, it's like it's a generational book. I mean, uh, people have said it's the Catcher in the Rye. Of yeah. The MTV generation, which is a terrible descriptor because Catcher in the Rye sucks butts and Parks does not. But at any rate. No, I'm comfortable with that. Um, yeah, very comfortable. So that yeah, so that leaves Perks at five, then King's Speech at six, then yep, Harry- H Pity at seven. Yep. So we've got three more. Um, yeah, and we're playing with house money right now, right? Did we kick three off? We kicked, um, Cinderella Man, Blackadder. Oh wait, so a what minute. are we missing? No, 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 no. I I screwed this up. So we have, we have, 
Dark Knight, Lord of the Rings. Oh, Star we're missing. Wars. Uh, we're missing a uh, Game of Thrones. Yeah. That's why. So why don't we put Game of Thrones at four? Okay. What What are you stumping for here? The last two. No, no. Which Game of Thrones? Oh, um, I I remember more clearly how I felt at the end of Hard Home than I do with Hodor. Mm-hmm. But Hodor, and Hodor being such a big part of the books. More so than the 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 Night King plotline that's more of a show creation. Yeah. I I'm willing to cede this one to to Hodor with the understanding that the hard home thing is just blows your mind. Yeah. Thank you. All right, let's do that. All right, cool. Um, so that puts us at Hodor at four, once at mm-hmm. five, Perk six, yep. King's Speech seven, Harry Potter, Snape eight, and now we've got nine and ten. And these are free for us to play with, right? Yep. Um, so we've got, I think, well, I think, I mean, I personally think I know what we should throw in here, don't you? I mean, Interstellar deserves a spot here. I love Interstellar so much yep. that I would like to see it on here. And I know what we, we, this is our damn list. Let's put 310 on this. Yeah, fuck it. <laughs> <laughs> it's the benefit of right. making your own podcast. <laughs> yeah, this is the nice thing about making the rules. Yeah, it, As it, my grandfather would say, the golden rule. The guy with the gold makes the rule. Yeah, Interstellar and 310 to you are on this list. <laughs> yeah, this is definitely our list. Uh, two movies that people generally like. Yeah. I don't think people generally like it as much as we do. Well, I hope that people get mad about this and go watch 310 to Yuma. I hope that's the yes. result of this. Yes, I hope they say, this is so stupid. How could that possibly be ahead of, you know, 2001 A Space Odyssey? And then they stop pretending that they've actually seen 2001 A Space Odyssey and then they go see 310 to Yuma. Seeing 2001 is a real ordeal, and that is a fun moment. Yeah. Um, it comes a little too early for me to to be like yeah. a true Goosebumps moment. Regardless, that brings us to a pretty full list there, Mike. That's 10 we have now. We've got a list. we got 10, and it has taken us all of 92 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh, why, don't you just, why don't you just rattle it off real quick, and we'll, we'll knock it out. All right. 310 to Yuma. The ending, which we're not going to spoil. Nine, Interstellar, Matthew McConaughey driving away from home and then ending up in space. <laughs> Number eight, H. Pity, the reveal of Snape's great sacrifice. Number seven, King's Speech, Birdie's uh, vindication and great speech. Uh, number six, Perks, the tunnel scene. Number five, the ending, falling slowly of once. Number four, Hodador. Number three, the X-Wing scene on Dagobah. Number two, but it is not this day, uh, The Return of the King speech. And number one, the most goosebump, chill, whatever, inducing moment in film, TV, literary history, The Dark Knight. Mike, there will come a day when the strength of our podcasting fails, but it is not this day. No, it might have been yesterday, but it is not this day. And until, until then, I would like you to continue being... The hero that I certainly do not deserve, but definitely the one I need. Thanks, buddy. That was a good one. Good work out there, buddy. Alrighty, friends. That was our top 10 for this week. But now we'd love to hear your top 10. So please check us out on all of our available social media outlets, traditional outlets, whatever outlets we have. Check us out on Twitter at Top10KM. That's all spelled out, Top10KM. Our email, Top10KM spelled the same way at gmail.com or our site 
top10km.podbean.com. All forms of communication accepted, except for serial killer notes. Please don't send us any of those. If you like the pod, be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you never have to miss an episode of Top 10 ever again. If you didn't like it, please tell us why. We'll try to make the show better. Our theme music was composed by Kevin McLeod, and our artwork was created by Aaron Sant. You can check out her stuff at Sant Design on Instagram. Alrighty, goons. We'll see you next time.